0: Having done Flash Gordon and Highlander, we're yeah. now going a bit niche and we're now going a bit yeah. weird and and yes. stay with us.
1: This is Owen Colfer in Dublin.
0: This is Andrew Donkin
1: in London. Welcome to the fifth episode of the podcast Double Booked.
0: Double Book to the podcast for people who like children's books, graphic novels, comics, fairy stories, libraries, librarians, bookshops, secondhand bookshops, and the secondhand librarians. Um,
1: my name is Owen Colfer, as I already said, and my co pilot here is Andrew Duncan. And you've had a, a very busy week, Andrew. I would like to congratulate you uh, on a history of the world in 25 city- cities uh, being shortlisted for the Waterstones Book of the Year and not. Just the kids' book. I was one listed for the kids' books, but the overall, the overall book of the year, uh, co-written with Tracy Turner, and art maps by Liddy Vanderplug. So that's pretty amazing.
0: Uh, well Thank done. you. It was a very, it was a very, very pleasant surprise. It's our new non-fiction book out. It tells the history of human civilizations by looking at. Um, the most important 25 cities through history. So you've got London and uh, the height of the British Empire, and you've got um, Paris and the French Revolution and St. Petersburg and the Russian Revolution and, and um, Tokyo and Venice and, and lots of other fantastic cities from history. Um, and suddenly uh, we were on the Waterstones Book of the Year shortlist up against other full-time book writing authors like sir paul mccartney and marcus rashford wow. who as we all know spend their time behind typewriters as you and i do toiling away full time on books so a bit surreal to be up against those literary luminaries but um but yeah there we go fantastic. And, uh, i mean i didn't i'm sorry but i sounded so surprised
1: earlier i mean i'm not surprised of course you would be uh
0: on the show well i time. was surprised yeah. tracy and i was surprised tracy is, is, is my um, co-writer on that one and, and um we were very surprised and delighted noisy crow publisher are delighted it's a kind of big coffee table book there's some very sweet pictures on instagram of kids reading it and the book is so big that it's bigger than some of the kids reading it um i would put the reading age at kind of like 11 to 10 or 11 to 99 but it's a big kind of coffee table book with some very beautiful maps on it which we can't show you because we don't have pictures on this we don't it's, have the it's a podcast but you can imagine imagine. Imagine the best map of New York City, the best map of Tokyo and London and San Francisco and the other cities. Um, And also, while we are speaking on the subject of having a busy month, uh, congratulations to to you for last month on the publication of your newest and possibly finest Artemis Universe book, uh, your third foul twins, the foul twins get what they deserve has been published by Harper Collins. Congratulations! It's just
1: come out and it's been uh, shortlisted for absolutely nothing so far. So um, it's too
0: new, that's why I think it's that, a it's short. A thing. It's going to be shortlisted for one of the best foul twins books of the year. I it's definitely a, in the top I three, have, I would say. <laughs> I have a feeling in my, I have a feeling in my water. Is it the end of the boys? I'm not asking you to give away the story, but is that the trilogy completed? Completed for a little while. Yeah, that's it now for a while.
1: I'll, I I feel I should let the Fowl family just sail off into the sunset um, and retire, and I'll leave them alone and stop following following them around. But can I ask you about your book? Just one little question. Uh, oh sure. The twenty five cities. Uh, what page is Dublin on?
0: Dublin. Well, we didn't want to put all the very, very, very best cities uh-huh. in the first uh-huh. book because then when it's a big success and gets nominated with support McCartney, Marcus Rashford and other well-known authors, yeah. uh, we wouldn't have any, and they ask us for a sequel. We wouldn't have another 25 for the sequel. Okay. So and- we've saved Dublin and Limerick and Waterford. for we for, we've we'll hold those back for book two. I hope that's... Very, I
1: hope the best getting out of a whole answer I ever, I ever had. Oh, I actually it believe it. I'm, I'm going for it because as a writer of sequels, I know it's possible. But you've said it here now, first, folks, that if there is a sequel, and I feel there will be, Dublin will be in.
0: Uh, yeah,
1: <laughs> absolutely. absolutely, absolutely. Of the world absolutely. in twenty-five slightly lesser cities.
0: <laughs> well, well, no, no, if they're all marvelous cities. It just depends. The one of the very difficult things about it was picking what city you're going to have in what year. So yeah. they tell the story of human civilizations. Obviously, you've got Rome at the heart of the Roman Empire, and you've got Athens, and you've got so-and-so. And Tracy Turner, uh, the, my co-writer on it, is a great historic expert, and, and she knew more about that kind of thing than, um, than I did. And, and we had a great time shuffling the pack and picking what cities were going to go, representing what centuries.
1: Why don't we um, change this uncomfortable subject uh, where you are get nominated and I'm not, and you're co-writing with someone else, and you give us a little rundown.
0: I thought I'd done quite well and being quite subtle about all of that.
1: I know I picked up there. I picked up on a, you mentioned my my co-writer a, she's a great you know Jean, more or less fantastic knows all this stuff that you don't know and uh, yeah you I are looking
0: the, though I can I, the, the listeners can't see you but and Sheamus, I'm going to butter him up a bit now because I can see he's on the turn you're looking particularly <laughs> handsome and particularly silver fox like today
1: that, that, so would, just, have just, more, that, that would have been more that would have been better if you in. hadn't preceded
0: it with the, the phrase
1: he's on the turn. <laughs> Because oh i I'm sorry i covered like my racist, microphone i thought you yeah. no
0: no no i mean i mean, you your turn right Rude would words. you like to know what we're talking about today you, know, you don't have to, to know it's entirely no i'd cheap. love
1: to it's probably better if i do know <laughs> <laughs> if I
0: talk about it. Well, uh, uh, right. Apparently, in me, myself, and I, you have chosen as your book of the week to talk about your book of the podcast to talk about *Grim Tales* by Philip Pullman, which is a fantastic book and tells some uh, retells some fantastic story tales. Then we have a little bit of mad science, which this week is is about birds, it's about our feathered friends, and then we have a fantastic guest interview um, with M. Uh, g uh leonard and her book um at the moment is twitch and she's also done the beetle boy trilogy and that's going to be fantastic Uh, and then we've got it was rubbish but i loved it which is my choice this week and i have chosen the dalek death ray which we which we'll come to we'll say no more now but the dalek death ray um and then after that we've got a couple of questions we've had questions flooded in two questions have flooded in through our mailbox at at doublebookpodcast.com a tsunami of two questions um and we're going to put those to you and if you have any comments about the podcast um and any questions for us at the end to do with writing and writing tips please write in to doublebookpodcast at aol.com great well we might as well start
1: then with uh, my me shelf, and i and my book of the week
0: hmm i wonder what they have picked this time it's me my myself and I.
1: So my the book I've chosen. Um, I'm holding it up. I don't know why. No one could see it. it I is, can see it. It's worth it for me. It's Grim Tales oh, uh, by Philip Pullman, uh, which has a beautiful cover, which looks like it's it's like a paper sculpture. It's fantastic, and and that is nearly enough to draw to it. But really, for me, um, this is just a brilliant collection of the grim tales and a retelling of the grim tales and it's the kind of thing you wouldn't read all in one sitting indeed i haven't read every one of the stories yet but i do dip into it every now and then and it's just fantastic because if you have 10 minutes or five minutes or even three minutes while you're uh in between uh things you know for you in between writing with someone else maybe and picking up an award that kind of little gap you could just read one of of these stories. But even more importantly for me is it sets out a guide on how fairy stories were written. And at the time when I bought this, uh, I was uh, writing a, a story with P.J. Lynch, Andrew. I was writing a story with P.J. Lynch uh, so and I, I wanted to write a fairy story, and I just felt it was getting too complicated. The story that I was writing it was get, and I couldn't figure what was making it so complicated. And at the start of this book, there's kind of a guide to how fairy stories are composed and written and how they work. Uh, And so I read that and it just changed everything for me. And it was very useful. It said little things like, for example, there's no hidden motivations really in fairy tales. You know straight away who everybody is, if they're good or if they're bad who the goodie is, who the bad he is, and who's going to do the horrible thing. There's not really much character development in fairy stories. Everybody has their assigned role, and they stick to that role. And it's very rarely someone becomes uh, a different person in a fairy tale. Things happen very quickly in fairy tales. Someone is born, and then two paragraphs later, they're getting married to a prince or a princess. Um, So there are all these kind of, basically, these moralistic stories, uh, very much like the parables uh, in the Bible. And so while I enjoyed the stories very much, I even more appreciated uh, the little guide at the beginning. And if you're going to get advice on how to write a story, who better than the maestro, our very own uh, YA Yoda, uh, Philip Pullman. Um, So if if you'd indulge me, please, Andrew, uh, I'd like to read just a little bit of it that just gives us an example of, of how Please it works. do. Are you
0: going to read a bit of the story or a bit of his advice and breakdown? A bit of his advice, I think, but it, ac- it actually yeah, also okay. encompasses
1: a, f- a few paragraphs from the story. So this is from the introduction to Grim Tales by Philip Hall. Swiftness is a great virtue in the fairy tale. A good tale moves with a dreamlike speed from event to event, pausing only to say as much as is needed and no more. The, The best tales are perfect examples of what do you need and what you don't. In Rudyard Kipling's image, fires that blaze brightly because of all the ashes have been raked out. The opening of a tale, for example, all we need is the word once and we're off. Once there was a poor man who couldn't support his only son anymore. When the son realized this, he said, Father, it's no use my staying here. I'm just a burden to you. I'm going to leave home and see if I can earn a living. And just a few paragraphs later, he's already married a king's daughter. Once, Or else, something like this. Once there was a farmer who had all the money and land he wanted, but despite his wealth, there was one thing missing from his life. He and his wife never had any children. When he met other farmers in town or at the market, they would often make fun of him and ask why he and his wife had never managed to do what the, their cattle did regularly. Didn't they know how to do it? In the end, he lost his temper. And when he got back home, he swore and said, I will have a child, even if it's a hedgehog. And uh, I love stuff like that because you kind of know
0: what's going to happen there.
1: That's fantastic.
0: Be. Yeah, you do. You do. You but know it just what it,
1: what buzzes is. along, those stories. So you don't get bogged down in inner monologue you don't get bogged down in, in uh you know descriptions of fine cities i mean there might be two lines telling you about the towers and the minarets but that's that's about it and once i kind of copped onto that i went back through the story and just weeded out anything meaningful emotional <laughs> and just left with the bare bones of a, a fairy story and i think it was a very was successful there, it was idea. a
0: fairy story that you were writing for for pj
1: yeah it's coming out um in 2023 so he's doing uh all these big massive lush paintings and uh, so it's going to take quite a while but it's, it's by 2023
0: to... there'll be bookshops on the moon that's the future 2023 well that's that's the plan and hopefully we'll be the first book um on the moon and
1: we're going to do a tour of the moon it's going to be great uh well hopefully me and you'll be back in south america by then um on tour with uh with Geo on with our next wonderful graphic novel. This is, of course, if you don't decide to do the other twenty five cities of the world
0: and just ditch me and Geo. Depends depends on the demand from from, from Dublin Knights uh, writing in Angry letters, obviously. So have you read now all of the Philip Pullman advice? It sounds like a fantastic book. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to beg someone to buy it for me for Christmas. Do you um, dip yeah, in? I, I read all um, of it, have you I finished haven't. it yet? Yeah, yep. Yeah.
1: I've read all of it I'm I've taken it to heart and uh, because I love that area of the, of uh, you know fairy tales and um grim tales es esque tales so I'll I'll th- it's advice that I will use going forward whenever I'm working in that in that media in that genre.
0: We need to see if we can get him on now that now that you've done that massive plug for his fantastic book I'm sure. Yeah I'm I remember sure he'll come on and make us a cup of tea. I think as well now we should say uh Uh, give a medal of valour to our co-producer and sound engineer uh, Seamus who I can see sitting in the other window he has got uh, a terrible cold uh, and he actually has COVID at the moment and and he's just there in a bucket of snot wiping it away as as you were speaking then with his uh, microphone on mute but he is recording this and editing this in the diaries of circumstances for him so we salute you Seamus we salute you Seamus we thank you for that If,
1: if we were there we would still salute you from a distance. But, yeah, uh, absolutely. Get well soon, and then your lovely wife too. Get well soon. Um, it's mad science next. Hello,
0: you're true to the weird science department. Have
1: you tried turning it on and off again? Mad science. Hey, no, we haven't.
0: I don't have to do that, Dan. <laughs> I love I love it to you. Mad science means a, a Cockney East End gangster it's who mad runs science, the isn't junkyard. It? It's mad science, <laughs> isn't it? Why, why? would it be that? Why would it be that? I'm a <laughs> I say it's mad science, but that's that's I think we need to make that the new jingle for season two. When we have season two in January, that can be the new jingle. Is you going, it's mad science, isn't it, darling? Uh, Which is which is not how science is. So, today, because we've got MJ coming up next, um, who uh is um, a, 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 a bug expert and a bird expert and a bit of a um. Uh, um, all our nature expert we've got mg coming out um this one is about how birds and you know homing pigeons obviously famous yeah. for being thrown out and they find their way home and some birds migrate over thousands and thousands of miles and people scientists have never known exactly how they do it do they is it a race memory do they follow um uh, you know signs on the terrain on the ground etc but this is from a new scientist in uh, july magnetic vision could help migrating birds navigate We may finally know the secret of how migrating birds can sense the Earth's magnetic fields. A molecule in their eyes that is sensitive to magnetism gives the animals an internal compass. The process may result in the animals seeing darker or lighter areas in their vision when they look in the direction of a magnetic field line. So in other words, they would be flying high and they would be able to kind of see uh, as dark lines the magnetic field of the Earth. Uh, It says, Um, they may be able to see north as a kind of shading. Previous work has shown that some species of birds, such as European robins, use the Earth's magnetic fields when they migrate, as well as other clues. At least part of this ability is thought to learn their eyes because their magnetism sensing is disturbed in the absence of light. Um, all, the, uh, all the way that they do this is a brilliantly called, a brilliantly named molecule called Cryptochrome 4, which sounds like some yeah. kind of world-ending virus day. or apocalyptic device. And it's present in the eye's light-detecting cells, and it has a structure that's affected by magnetic fields so when they're flying through them or looking down that's what translates it into a kind of a visual signal um, that they can see and this one of the scientists that's done all this work is called Henrik Moritzon, and he says at the end um, but the group hasn't yet demonstrated that cryptochrome 4 is being used for magnetic sensing in real life and then he says and I love this quote he says we only looked at this molecule in isolation we didn't look at it inside a bird because that's extremely difficult yeah i think that's a good excuse no, 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 that's great it's, 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 we've done it we've done it in the lab and then the but the, you've got the bird and the bird's just going i'm not having this i'm not i'm yeah. no just get a peck peck get away i'm not having this and it's right. extremely difficult but they think that's how it's done so all of the birds that are flying around the skies and all of the sort of pigeons when they're finding their home, they have kind of when they look down they probably see the earth's magnetic field as a kind of like lines a contour lines on a you know ordnance survey map and navigate accordingly. I think that's some um, amazing and brilliant. It is
1: amazing. Uh, I believe it too because sometimes, I and mean, this might seem weird, but sometimes when I'm driving down a road, I can see like these yellow lines in the middle of the road. I don't know if anyone's <laughs> – there's definitely a lot of people who don't see them, but uh, I just follow those. I navigate. But joking aside, isn't that, a much, isn't that an amazing thing? I wonder, is there an equivalent thing for salmon and, you know, under,
0: underwater if they can just see where they're supposed to go? Or is it all well, just salmon, salmon? To be fair, it's easier for a salmon because a salmon is in a river. It can yeah. either go back or it can go forward. It has only two options, doesn't it? To be but fair, well, it can go sideways. I mean, it could be. They, a they can wider. go sideways to a certain extent, and then they go outside the river. Don't
1: mark my salmon theory. I mean, I would check it out, but it would be hard. it would be hard to check that out. It's even harder. Well, it would be equally hard
0: than checking out the bird. So. Yes, and we've already established that that would be that would be quite. But difficult. it is an interesting one. And I'd say I'd say as we get
1: more and more technologically and scientifically advanced, we're going to be finding so much more about animals, Um, and that's why it's such a tragedy that is it fifty species a day are still going extinct. So it's uh, it's all this knowledge that we will never have,
0: and all these cures. Speaking of the amazing things that the natural world does, it's now time for our special author guest um mg leonard uh she is the fantastic author of the beetle boy trilogy um co-author of adventures on the train and her new book twitch can a Birdwatcher outwit an Escape convict won the sainsbury children's book of the year and is nominated on the long list for the carnegie and here she is reading an excerpt from chapter one welcome to the part of the show we invite writers to we really love them and we know you love them too
2: This is the opening of Twitch. I'm reading from chapter one, which is called Rock Dove. Kill it. Twitch stopped dead on the path to the main school building, ignoring the spots of rain landing on his cheeks. He listened. Go on, do it. The feverish voice belonged to Jack Kappelman, a charismatic boy with caramel-coloured hair who'd moved to Bridvale a few months ago. From the moment he'd sloped into school with his city boy manner, everyone had danced to Jack's tune, following him like the Pied Piper's rats. My dad says if you crush a pigeon, its eyes will pop out, said a deep voice that could only belong to Vernon Boone. Vernon was the size of a grown-up and as sensitive as a sandbag. Outside school, he always wore wellies and his dad ran the local abattoir. Vernon rarely spoke to Twitch, although he shoved him on a daily basis, laughing if he stumbled or fell. Twitch heard a chorus of, Ooh, oh, let's see, do it, oh, I can't look. Bending down, he picked up a flint from the barren flower bed that ran alongside the chemistry block and slipped the stone into his blazer pocket, hurrying to the corner of the building. Peering round at where the big silver dustbins were kept, he saw four boys crowded around something on the ground. Terry Vallis, a skinny boy with dark curly hair and braces, was babbling. Oh, are you sure this is a good idea? I mean, it's the eye-popping thing. It's making me feel sick. I mean, I'm not going to puke anything, but... Jack started to chant. Do it! Do it! Do it! Do what? Twitch asked loudly. The boys were startled by his voice. Azuru, you're supposed to be keeping watch. Jack scolded the short boy standing at the edge of the group. Azurusawa shrugged and looked away. <laughs> Twitch recognised the alarmed calls of a bird, saw the brick Vernon clutched in his fist, and folded his arms to try to contain the anger that blazed in his chest. You're going to kill a rock dove? No, Vernon sniffed. Gonna kill a pigeon. A pigeon is descended from a rock dove. Twitch glared at the boys through his brackish-blonde fringe. He was a bit taller than Azuru and stronger than Terry, but the odds of him surviving a punch-up with either Jack or Vernon were slim, and he had no chance against all four of them. "'That bird has as much right to live as you do!' And I'll stop there.
0: Hurrah. That Brilliant. was great. Thank you very much. That, that was great. I, and your bird, in, your... your bird noise was fantastic. That's fantastic. We, I, and I <laughs> that's just go coo, 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 like that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> would you say that, um, having read that, Maya, would you say that our producer, Seamus, has caramel colored hair? Just to, look at it? <laughs> if we're being kind about that, I think. Yeah, it's
2: kind of a strawberry caramel. <laughs>
1: <laughs> strawberry caramel. That's our new, That's that's to be your new thing on the, your new moniker. Mm-hmm. Strawberry <laughs> strawberry caramel. That was fantastic. Uh, it, it, it's really handy when you go out on the road to be able to do all the parts like that. You can really make yeah. that come alive.
2: I record my audiobooks. So So uh, in the distant past, uh, I trained as an actor. Um, I thought I wanted to be an actor. And then I'm actually not being, I'm not very good at being told what to do. So uh, when I got cast in things and people told me what to do, I didn't want to do it. So I... Um, <coughs> I love the the kind of personification and the exploration and the making things up part of acting, but I just don't actually like the being told what to do and doing it over and over again for other people's pleasure bit of acting. <laughs> so, yeah, that,
1: that's like the whole <laughs> definition of acting. <laughs> it's like yeah. a director's yeah, dream. Yeah, I didn't dream. actually
2: you can put all of that into making up stories, into writing.
1: And when did you first realise that you, the stuff that you were writing was actually good? We you know because we all write for a long time, and we just think we're scribblers. But when was there a moment when you thought, you know what, this is not so bad?
2: Uh, no, so I when I was in my twenties, I tried to write grown-up things. Um, uh, you know, I had I grand ideas of writing something terribly dramatic and literary, or something like that, uh, and. Um, I failed dramatically, it was unreadable, tosh, it was absolute nonsense and it was awful and it just makes me cringe to think of it now. Um, And then I had the idea for Beetle Boy uh, long before I ever wrote a word of it uh, because I, I hit upon this interesting conundrum which is that I genuinely believed as an adult that I knew what a beetle was and then I discovered that the scientific name for beetles is Coleoptera. And Coleoptera literally means sheathed wings. And the descriptive name of a beetle is a creature that has two different pairs of wings. And I, when I thought about beetles in my head, I never pictured wings ever. I pictured a little insect scurrying around on the floor. And I would go to the pub and talk to my friends and ask them what they thought a beetle was. And it transpired that actually a lot of people don't know what a beetle actually is. And that's where the idea for the book came from, but I I didn't attempt to write it for years. It just it became magnetised in my head and suddenly all things Beatles started to get attracted to me and then eventually it was undeniable and I was so in love with the subject matter that I felt that I had to up my game with my words um, to do the subject service, you know, to, to do Beatles uh, a good service, to write a good story that supports uh, a positive... Uh, rhetoric about insects because usually they're baddies or villainous or disgusting or dirty Uh, and yeah and then and that's when I discovered that my narrative voice my entire personality actually not just my narrative voice but the the voice inside me uh, is 12 and that's why I can't really write grown-up stuff because the things I find interesting or funny or uh, charming or uh, yeah, it's, just, it's the things that 12-year-olds also Yeah, you have much, funnier. much
0: more fun being a children's author and an author of graphic novels and genre than writing stories about 45-year-old men slash women having nervous breakdowns in Hampstead and doing all, all manner of serious stuff. Now, my 11-year-old son Fisher and I read the whole Beetle Boy trilogy during last year's lockdown, which we loved in the summer. As you know, you and I spoke about that. Was it always going to be a trilogy? Was it always going to be three or was it like we'll do the first one and see how it goes? How did you structure it?
2: Yes. So I, when I set out to write Beetle Boy, I, I'd never written a book before. It's the first book I'd ever written. So uh, I really hadn't got a clue what I was doing. And I tried to put the whole trilogy into one book. So it, my first draft was like 120,000 words and it was just huge. And I tried to send it to agents and they said, no, <laughs> you're not allowed to write a book that long. Uh, it has to be about 50,000 words if it's going to be a middle grade book. And I didn't even know what middle grade meant or that there were categories. I, I really just wrote the whole thing. Um, and that's when I started to think about the art form and the structure. And and I broke it apart. And really, that's when I probably did a good draft. I think what I was sending out to begin with was terrible. Uh, that's when I really thought about the nuts and bolts of the story and what I was trying to do. But I hadn't really finished it. I got offered a publishing deal before I had... An agent um it's a one of those topsy turvy stories, but Chicken House offered me a deal, but they only offered me for the first part of the story um and they wanted a preempt they didn't want it to go to anyone else. So I insisted that uh, I have an agent. I got an agent within 24 hours, which was astonishing to me. I'd been trying to get one for years and everyone had said no. It, it's strange, suddenly, it's strange
0: yeah. how having 15% of a prepaid deal that's already arranged will we'll speed up agents' responses. I just put that out there if there are <laughs> yeah. any agents listening to this in publishing. It's, I can't <laughs> think what it is about the 15% of a lot of money that appeals <laughs> yeah, to them, yeah. but it, it just seems to work that way. I don't know why. Yeah. That's a bit like, what what first attracted you to Millionaire Paul? Daniels? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. no, know, exactly. <laughs> there's just all these sharks in the sea and they just happen to be where the blood is. I don't know. I don't know how it works.
2: But yeah, so I said, she said, what do you want? Because, I, uh, you know, there's no... There's no uh, sorry, if anyone's listening and you think being a children's author makes you a millionaire, it really doesn't. And the advances are very modest uh, and definitely not enough to live off. And I already had a great job that I loved at the National Theatre, So uh, she said, what do you want? And I said, well, I don't want big money because I know that's not something that comes with uh, children's books. But what I would like is a firm commitment to publish all three books in the trilogy. I don't want to uh, give up the first book only for uh, people not to like it. And then I never get to complete the story. The notion of not completing the story was much more upsetting to me than the idea of, of money and uh, not getting it or getting it. So that was the caveat to sign that preempt was that they would publish all three. Uh, I, was completely aware that lots of people don't like insects and writing a story that is entomologically accurate and researched and full of insects might be a very niche product. <laughs> it might not have many fans. So I wanted a firm commitment to the whole trilogy. That's right. No, I, I think, I think, you, think you, just, you just
0: have to write what you what you believe in. There was a moment when we were talking to, we, we had just sold illegal and, and I remember Owen saying to me, oh, this is going to be great. We've got, we, we're doing it. Giovanni did fantastic artwork. And I said, yeah, yeah, I don't have any doubt that the end product will be, be really nice. But this is a subject matter that might appeal to 12 people. It might be, you know, my mum, your mum, and 10 other people that will buy it. And we were just kind of like, we have to tell that story. That's the, that's the story we want to tell. Now, before we go on and talk about Twitch and talk about your process and stuff on um, original kind of standalone novels, um, I have to ask you about Adventures on the Train but not your very successful adventure on the train series. But a couple of days ago, you had uh, an extraordinary adventure on the train when you were giving a workshop to some kids on a hydrogen-powered train. This is all completely true. And you were absolutely gatecrashed by uh, by an unexpected special guest who turned out to be uh, the prime minister of the United Kingdom. So can, so how did that happen? What are you doing on a hydrogen train? Why have you got children kidnapped in a workshop? And what's the prime minister doing bursting through the doors?
2: So I, uh, write a series with another author called Sam Sedgman, uh, which is called Adventures on Trains. And uh, our next book, our fifth book in the series, is called Sabotage on the Solar Express. And it's set in Australia. Uh, and always when we write our books, uh, we're inspired by the countries and the places that the railways are from. And there is lots of really interesting things happening in Australia with the production of hydrogen. They've got some of the biggest solar farms in the world. Uh, All um, the clean fuel that people are investing in, uh, a lot of it's in Australia. So we thought, wow, okay, we're going to set this book in Australia. Let's do a train of the future. Let's do something really futuristic, something that's really uh, green. Uh, And so we constructed a fictional uh, train called the Solar Express, which is powered by regenerative hydrogen fuel cells, which are currently only used by NASA in spaceships. But we were thinking, oh, it'd be great if we could put one of those onto a train and have solar panels on the top and make a completely eco-friendly vehicle. Uh, And then for uh, someone evil, I can't give away any spoilers, to sabotage said vehicle and make it like a homage to Apollo 13 and uh, Speed and all those action movies. So that's the book that we are currently writing. Uh, An excerpt of it is trailed in our previous book that just came out called Danger at Dead Man's Pass. And the comms officer, who is the head of Network Rail, has children. They read our books. And she invited us to come and see the first prototype of a hydrogen chain built by the UK at COP26. Uh, And we were so excited because... At the moment, our science fiction is utterly fictional and it's a lot of YouTube videos and Googling NASA websites and trying to concoct something. But the invitation to come inside a hydrogen chamber on a train was utterly (laughs) enticing. And so what they said is they would uh, put out a competition to local schools in Glasgow many of which uh, the children have never even been on a train, uh, inviting a class of kids to come and have an author event with us on this hydrogen prototype, which, uh, I mean, incredible invitation, and I was so delighted to be asked. Uh, And so we took the Caledonia sleeper up to Glasgow, got up at 6.30 in the morning. I got dressed in the public toilets. We went and saw the incredible hydrogen train. And at this point, we were told that, the CEO of the company uh, knew Boris Johnson and had asked Boris Johnson if he could do a photo op outside the train that we were going to be on. Um, but that Boris's uh, schedule was very packed and he probably wouldn't turn up. Uh, but because of this, the whole train had to be like cleared by sniffer dogs, a big security attache was there. It interrupted quite a lot of the day's plans. So we were you know, moving around. And then we were told later, it looks like he might show up but he'll walk past the outside of the train and please ignore him and keep the children focused in because it'll be something that's happening outside and we were to ignore it. So is that fair? So we're in the middle of the event. We're talking to the children about adventures on trains and about kidnappings and murders and and talking about hydrogen and all that kind of stuff. And then the doors of the train opened and these Burly security men kind of pushed me and my other author Sam up against the wall, clearing a space for the prime minister, who then bumbled on board wearing a mask, which bumbled. was interesting because I've seen a lot of images of him. So he was not he was masked
0: masks. for you. He didn't mask for National Treasure ninety five year old Sir David Attenborough, but he yeah. did mask for you.
2: I suspect he was masked because he wanted a photo opportunity with some young children. No. Uh, that's what I think. Because he's a South Senator.
0: Allegedly, allegedly. So we'll just say too. allegedly, so we're covered for our lawyers. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I have no idea. But uh, he, the children were, because sh- the children, you know, I'm not, I don't imagine that the young children of Glasgow have a particularly positive notion of the United Kingdom's prime minister. That would be my guess. I don't but they think Glasgow
1: is been- known for its positivity in no. general. <laughs>
2: So, but I don't think they, no one had told the children that this was, well, they hadn't told us it was a possibility. I don't think anyone knew this was a possibility. So the children looked horrified that the event had been interrupted by all these men and lots of photographers. And then one of them shouted, you look like the prime minister of the United Kingdom. And Boris was like, oh, yes, actually, yes, I am. I'm the Prime Minister. And then the faces they pulled. It was like someone had done a bad fart. It was hilarious. They were all like, it was was a very strange scenario. And then he picked up our books and was like, what's this? Is it any good? And uh, we were like, "Uh, there are books. And he was like, oh, marvellous. Are they doing well? We said, yes. And then he had his photo taken enough. He just turned around and walked off again. So it was... It was the most surreal day if I'm honest to be on a train of the future with a lovely class of kids and then for it to be completely sabotaged <laughs> by the Prime Minister you of the di- United you didn't Kingdom because he wanted you to You didn't fight- get
0: the chance to ask him and discuss ecological policy with him in that in that moment.
2: I mean, I don't think we would have allowed been allowed to step near him. We were just do, up against the... We I'm not, suggest, I'm not, not the suggesting way.
0: he wasn't drawn in by potential interest in your excellent Train Book series, but do you also think he might have been drawn in when he saw children just on the off chance that some of them were his?
2: it is a possibility i wouldn't put it past
0: him he was just looking for a blonde mop top so that's amazing so that must have made an already like you know crazy trip to be on a hydrogen train and cop and everything just a bizarre surreal cherry on top of a lovely day
2: I mean, it was an incredible day. Arriving by a sleeper, the Caledonia sleeper was a dream come true, anyway. But for me, the thing that was incredible—the woman who designed the hydrogen train—and it was a woman. She's an amazing engineer called Helen uh, uh, Simpson. As uh, she took us through the hydrogen chamber, telling us exactly what they'd done and how it worked, and uh, and then we got to ride on the train on a loop around Glasgow, uh, and. It was very emotional, like to be on a train that is powered by hydrogen and, and on its first journey when you're an author who's just fictionally created one and put it into a book that isn't even available yet. It just felt, I don't know, like an out That's, that's genius. The it sounds fantastic.
0: I, I, I hope she's known as Hydrogen yeah. Helen in the office. I mean, she must be surely in a lab.
2: <laughs> she was so cool, and I have her email address so that I can bother her with questions.
1: Well, I think technically you invented that train. I mean, if you just as Douglas Adams invented the internet, I think technically I, you did invent that train. So,
0: I
2: mean, that's what that's that's what I'm going to have uh, put down on the patent invented <laughs> by <laughs> MG Leonard. Yeah, because
0: inventing things is Fantastic. just thinking of them. There's no building, engineering, yeah. selling, testing. It's just, you know, yeah. it's just the having an idea like we do, which is good. Will you talk to us about oh, Twitch? I, I want to.
1: Twitch has been amazingly Twitch uh, successful. Twitch is long-listed for
0: the- uh, It won the Sainsbury's Children's Book of the Year. So many congratulations to both of those. Um, and it's very different. Wow, yeah. It's much more, much, much, much more realistic than the um, Beetle Boy trilogy. So how did you go from the stepping of, of Beetle Boy to Birds and Twitch? And it's about uh, um, a bird watcher uh, called Twitch. Um, who has pigeons and swallows nesting in his bedroom and things, and he is involved in a game of cat and mouse with a convicted robber in a kind of bird sanctuary. And we won't give too much away, and it's all about um, him outwitting the robber, and it's also a lovely portrayal of friendship between boys. So where did, the, uh, where did the genesis come from? Did it come from a lady called Hydrogen Helen by email? Did she send it to you? Because that would at least be some kind of fair <laughs>
2: Uh, No, it came from lots of children who came to my Beetle Boy events because I was touring with the Beetle Books for a number of years and I noticed uh, that a lot of the children that loved bugs and were uh, really keen on the books were nature enthusiasts and many of them were bird watchers. And, of course, anyone who loves birds appreciates insects, so it was a natural kind of connection. And quite a lot of them would say to me, I'm sure you uh, get this when you're doing events, Oh, do you think you could write a book about a bird watcher? kind of like you know that's me, I'd like a book about me uh and I didn't think that I could because I'm definitely an insect specialist now. I can definitely hold my own in a room full of entomologists, but I don't know a lot about birds uh, I appreciate them, but i I don't know enough to write about them um. But then I had this thought, which is that, hang on a second, all these kids that are turning up to the events, they've got their little binoculars and they've got their notebook and their pencils to write down the species of uh, birds that they see and they've got their reference books and they're always dressed in camouflage colours and they're usually very patient and observant. And these are all the traits of a fantastic detective. And I thought, oh, maybe I could do some kind of a like a bird watching like secret seven and so twitch is really the origin story of the twitchers which is what the series of books is going to be called and it's my outdoor nature filled take on a secret seven gang of kids that are there to you know protect the environment and particularly um bird life uh so that's where the idea came from it came from readers of beetle boy really so i'm very grateful for that
1: can i just add, i'll leave the last question Andrew. but as an aside uh, i think in future twitcher books you're bound to discover what someone is bound to discover a new species and if that does happen can you please call it the strawberry caramel because i think that would be <laughs> that would be a lovely
0: nod to seamus and uh, we would really tribute appreciate to
2: i wanted
0: to i wanted to ask you how much you plan and about your the the process both in the sense of your daily routine when you're when you're writing do you have particularly hours you've got kids like i've got kids so i imagine you probably do and how much do you plan how much do you structure how much do you work ahead
2: yeah so i am a structure freak yeah Yeah, i have (laughs) spreadsheets and everything um when I f- wrote the first draft of Beatle Boy, I did what people call pantsing, where you just go by the seat of your pants and you write. And I wrote hundreds of thousands of useless words that were a waste of my time and of u- no use to the narrative. Uh, and it doesn't work for me at all. I get lost in cul-de-sacs and it just was a disaster. Um, so I'm, I'm very much in love with a five-act structure. I've always worked in theatre and I've worked um, on so many plays that are built in a five-act structure. And my... Uh, my master's in is in Shakespeare studies and obviously Shakespeare plays are all five acts so for me breaking a story into five acts and making sure that each act delivers uh what it needs to for that story to stack up well um is the first thing that I do so I never I don't sit down and just write ever when I have an idea for a book I I I post it note plot that's what I call it um I think of lots of scenes that I think would be great in the story like a Kingfisher scene or something like that and I just write that on a post-it note and I stick them up on the wall randomly just and when I have ideas about characters I'll put the character name up on the wall and I'll end up with a wall covered in lots of different coloured post-it notes and when I feel like I have because books are very thirsty for ideas and drama and detail when I feel like I have enough for a book, if I've filled three A five notebooks and I've got my wall of post it notes, that's usually enough content, enough fodder for the imagination. And then what I do is I move all the post it notes around and I try and create what needs to happen in Act One, which characters we have to meet and the problem we have to establish, uh, the setting that we have to make the reader like believe in. Um, and I I work on each of those acts without still not writing a sentence, uh, and only when I know the shape of the whole story and I know exactly how it's going to end and I've got that all uh on a wall uh then I will write what I call my draft zero which is my pass through the book where I'll be like they go into a room and something exciting happens here don't know what it is yet and then carry on so I've got a really rubbish version of the text but it's it's structural enough that I can see that I have to move scenes or that the act one is too heavy and it's, it's slow and, and and I can move things around and I use a a software program called Scrivener, which allows you to move scenes and chapters without doing cut or paste. Um, And to see an overview of the book uh, from above in a folder type structure. Um, So I move everything around. And once I I'm satisfied that I've got what I need, I write a proper draft um, and that first draft is usually, not always, but usually the one that I will share with an editor so they know what I'm doing um, with a story. But I feel like st- people don't talk about structure very often. And I the whole notion to me that uh that writing is like being in an ivory tower and you're just inspired and then genius comes out of your fingertips. Uh, it doesn't work for me. That's not how my brain functions. I'm much more of a fan of the idea that, you know, if you're a craftsman and you make chairs, the first chair you make is going to be a bit rickety. But if you study the craft and you study it and you work about how everything structurally goes together, you know, you can make the legs interesting, et cetera, but you need four well-balanced legs. So I think of it as a craft. And uh, I like my stories to be structured in a way that delivers the kind of ending that I think a reader hopes for or expects Sure, I think the, the craftsman
0: is, is, is one that uh, I think I, I, we both subscribe to uh, as well because it is taking raw material and then just shaping it and crafting it to the best of your abilities. And obviously sometimes you get stuff which is fantastic and that's come out really well. Other times you get stuff that re, that needs more work or needs another uh, draft, but it's not some kind of lightning bolt from the sky. Uh, it is it, always hard no. work. Um, you know, it's always hard work and it's always reworking yes. stuff. And he's looking at stuff and saying, what's the best path through these events? As you were saying, what's the best path through these events for this character who's going to go on um, any particular journey? Uh, one element I really loved of Twitch and that, that uh, Fishery loved as well was... Uh, the friendship element uh, uh, the main character is called twitch and he diverts a friendship with someone who's not a very likable character to start with he's a bit of a school bully jack but i found it um really really well written really believable really nice um and heartwarming relationship between those two boys the story of boys friendships is that taken from i know you have sons is that taken from things you've seen and experienced with them
2: yeah, it's it's things that, uh, you know, relationships at school and with friends are complicated and you can be really good friends with someone and then next week you can be dropped like a ton of bricks and not understand why. And it's often to do with fads and fashions and peer pressure. And it's emotional and it's complex to deal with. Uh, and particularly children who love nature often find or feel themselves to be outsiders because they're, they're not normally the alpha uh, male in a pack. They're often more thoughtful and considered. And uh, I really wanted to explore a relationship between uh, alpha and a beta male and what they can bring to each other. And I also really resist the notion that there are good kids and bad kids. And often uh, fiction dials it down into very simple, you know, this is a goodie, this is a baddie. Uh, I think there's good and bad behavior and complex characters are capable of both it's one of the things I loved about Artemis actually Owen my son's love is that you know you can have a a proper complex character a child who is capable of both good choices and bad choices and then must deal with the consequences of those actions Uh, so that relationship is central to the whole book and I think it's something that children who've read it and loved it have told me they want more of they want to know what happens next with Twitch and jack they really love those two so um yeah no yeah, I, I did and he like
0: did that. it's great it's the it's the heart of the book and it's a it's a lovely warm uh friendship and relationship um may it would be lovely to go on talking to you but we have to we have to draw it to a close and and move on but thank you so much for being here thank
2: uh-huh. you so much for having me Oh, it's a pleasure. It's I'm very pleasure. happy
1: to finish it on the Artemis compliment. I think that's a good thing. James, if
0: anything needs to be cut, then I mean, we can just we've read all them. The yeah. Yeah. of the so, don't, Oh, that'll be cut. Don't <laughs> okay. feel the need to keep that. There's no pressure from me.
2: Thank you for having me. It was lovely to speak with you all.
0: It was rubbish, but I loved it. Um,
1: next we have It Was Rubbish, But I Loved It. And we have been accused, Andrew, of being a little bit genre on this podcast, we do like our science fiction. And you could be accused of the same here, but you object and you say, no, this has nothing to do uh, with science fiction, really. But I would say with something like the death, Dalek Death Ray, which is your rubbish but I loved it thing, surely uh, it has something got to do with science fiction. I shall let you explain and elaborate.
0: Well, the Dalek Death Ray, it it really was rubbish, but I loved it. It was It was rubbish junk food. The Dalek Death Ray was a 1970s ice lolly and it was a 1970s ice lolly based on being exterminated by a dalek it was a chocolate and mint flavored ice lolly and there was uh, the best thing about it that attracted me and and i know listeners owen and i talked about this we know how niche this is but bear with us because it, it was a really rubbish thing but i also really loved it the ice lolly little envelope thing that it came in had frank bellamy artwork uh by the great 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 science fiction artist frank bellamy he had artwork that was nicked out of a dalek annual and and used on all of the dalek death ray uh ice lollies and they came from um the 1970s when you had a whole genre of uh frozen Comestibles that you you don't get today. Today, if you go into a newsagent's, you've got your magnums, and there might be new almond magnum, and there might be, it's all kind of just branded like that. But in the old days, in the old days, and just imagine this people tried to sell you ice lollies and ice creams by relating it to a television show. So yeah, there wonderful. was a Space 1999 ice lolly that was lime, vanilla, and strawberry. Now, what the flavor choice, lime, vanilla, and strawberry, has to do with a huge atomic explosion on the moon that blows it out of Earth orbit and sends it flying at pr- more, quicker than the speed of light, speeds through the universe, I have nothing to know. But you would go into a newsagent, and if it was a hot, sunny day in the summer and you had a nice lolly, you might well select it based upon if it had the bionic man on the wrap-up, because it was a bionic yeah. lolly. It was, and
1: there was... Um there was great. There was more Doctor Who ice lollies as well. It was just a Tom Baker Doctor Who ice lolly, which I, I'm look. I went to look this up when you told me because I knew that I had vague memories. There was a Count Dracula one too, which I remember loving because it had a red coating on it. Uh, there was a couple actually. One was black and then they had the blood inside. Yes, yeah. so when you bit into it. The blood will go down your face, and then one was read that you could just wipe all over your face and <laughs> pretend to your mother that you be been a horrific accident, which I think <laughs> I may have done. But but I, when I went searching, then there's a there's book, Australia were mad. I, if there's any Australians uh, listening, Australians were mad for the themed ice cream, uh, and there was a company called Polls, which was I suppose um, like their walls, and they they loved their. Buck Rogers, they love the Buck Rogers. And do you remember, Andrew? I'm gonna. Do you remember the double stickers, like two sticks, one lolly, and you bought it with your pal, and you just broke them apart, uh, and you hoped it broke cleanly, or there'd be a fight. I don't. Got, I
0: don't remember those. I don't ever. Uh, uh, I don't recall a double stick. No, not at all. Was, well, was, did you have those in Ireland? Was that an we Australian? Did it, we did fair? okay, nice.
1: very culturally. We had them in Dublin actually, which apparently is one of the world's. Fifty greatest cities. I'm not well, it sure. Could, it could be. It depends. It could, now, could now
0: with this, with this fact added on, um, almost yeah. certainly yes.
1: And they had they had a return of the Jedi one and a Star Wars one. And again, you're looking at the colors and you're trying to find what is this? this, this why does that connect to Darth Vader? Well, I was Red going to, I was going to ask you
0: this pop quiz, but but okay. you've you've clearly looked it up, and, and I admire the fact that you've taken the niche idea of a 1970s Dalek isolation called No, No, Andrew. That's much too mainstream. I'm going to look up <laughs> ice lollies with two sticks in Australia <laughs> because I think we need to go a little bit more niche on this subject. Otherwise, it's just too broad and everyone. Gets Can patient. I just tell so, the listeners
1: that this is Andrew's way of scolding me that I'm being scolded now? Um, no, no, it's,
0: it's genius yeah, that you. Uh, I, did, I didn't. It didn't occur to me to look but up. The last, the old, I'm, sorry, I'm
1: previously, I've been scolded for doing no research. And That's they not were true. Just Showing up on the day. <laughs> I got an email from Adele, our friend Adele, mentioned. And she said, at least Andrew looked into some of the subjects. Like, you know, Oh, so, <laughs> that's a bit
0: harsh. <laughs> that
1: is a bit harsh, so thanks, Adol. So I thought for today I could, I, I, there's worse things to do than
0: Google oh, yeah. uh, you know, TV-related ice lollies. Okay, so it, Seamus, you're up. I'm going to tell you an ice lolly. I'm going to tell you a franchise, and you have to think, what flavor will the ice lolly be, okay? So we're going to start with a really big one, uh, Star Wars. If you had a Star Wars ice lolly, what flavor would you think it would be? Well, well was, it, was it themed after a particular movie? Uh, was it themed after a particular episode? Or was it just a Star Wars I dolly? think it's the first Star Wars. Let's go with the first, Star, first Wars. Star Wars Okay. Blue for a blue lightsaber? Well, I think they might have been thinking about Chewbacca. I don't know. The answer was it was chocolate ice, chocolate coating, and it had sugar balls. Sure. So I don't... I don't know if they were thinking of Chewbacca or what they were What they were thinking of. There were a couple I, of Star guess, Wars ones.
1: There's the one here, Return of the Jedi, and guess what the uh, main ingredient was?
0: It had to be Ewok. Is it Ewok? No, no it's Jedi jelly. Jedi jelly.
1: <laughs> I, I, suspect, like, I, I suspect that's just jelly.
0: I suspect. I, I like the fact that the first time I'm dragged onto the podcast is because I'm qualified to talk about ice lollies finally
1: we're <laughs> in your wheelhouse
0: now <laughs> finally, finally yeah. we're in my wheelhouse it only took covid and the want of an ice lolly yeah and this,
1: this is a huge mistake everyone's gonna love Seamus now we'll be ousted we're gonna go poor Seamus he's got covid and those two elephants are making fun of him <laughs> and he's gonna get all the likes and I he's think gonna get, he's get
0: gonna get all the letters, I can and tell you. And you know he's not gonna anyway, cut this because he is like it's the him. Same. yeah, yeah, no, right, it's yeah. a guarantee if he's <laughs> not gonna he's not gonna cut this. Anyway, when you get a chance after the podcast, send me let's find a time machine and go get me one of those ice lollies. Yeah. yeah, no, they sound, <laughs> they sound they sound they sound good as well. So you had some of that made uh, sense. My favorite one was Bing Crosby ice cream, and it's
1: not a lolly. Like oh my Bing god, Crosby. Bing Crosby.
0: Bing Crosby ice
1: cream, Uh, I don't know why you would have that. I'm trying to find what flavour it was here. Um, It doesn't say on on the thing. It's just a picture of Bing Crosby and some stars around him, and he's pledging, he's pledged quality himself, so... Fair
0: enough. Some of them so, did make sense, Seamus. Banana Man, the Banana Man I it was banana and toffee. That makes sense. Yeah, well, yeah. And something called a Fizz bag. Had, had a fizzy center with lemon and lime. So some of them did kind of, like, make sense. Um, yeah. But some of them were just, just kind of, like, mad. King Kong was banana and toffee as well. Um, and Merlin's Brew was minty chocolate. And you have to think that minty these are not around yeah. today because the amount of E numbers – and made-up chemical flavorings in all of these oh, must yeah. have been absolutely off of the chart, which is why um, they were rubbish. They were junk food rubbish. Um, but we loved them.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yes. That is a very valid choice. I think I'll have to I'll have to think hard to come up with a topping for that one. <laughs> Little ice cream joke there. That's that's why I make the big bucks jokes like that. <laughs> I think we should move very, very, very swiftly on.
0: Very swiftly, All yeah, right. Our next, our next, uh, our next section is um, Agony Owen. Thank you for your question. Agony Owen will be with you shortly. Um, I have two letters this week, two, two questions. flooded in. So the first one is from, um, the first question is from Samantha of Norfolk. And Samantha says, I've been a writer for 10 years uh, and unfortunately, I've developed some pains to go with it. How do you face the daily pains of being a writer, shoulders and wrists, especially when you have deadlines and the idea of taking a break goes against everything I am, she says.
1: I don't think you should be developing pains really after. I mean, I we I have some neck pain now, but um, I got exercises to try and deal with it. But I've been out it 35 years, so I think 10 years seems very very early. Um, when she says, like, go, I've been writing
0: for 10 years, maybe she means nonstop. <laughs> it's like a continuous.
1: Yeah. Uh, like a continuous I, no, charity. Well, I, I don't, I, I want to, I mean, I, I don't think we're that kind of expert in that, like the, the actual physical act of writing. I, I think it's more, uh, it's, you know, writing tips. Uh, so I would definitely go and see a chiropractor or something about that. Cause it sounds you don't, you shouldn't be getting that kind of pain. Uh, that that you're actually thinking of stopping so um i would i would go and see a chiropractor uh about that and uh, for myself I've, i have i have had some neck pain and uh so i have had treatment for that over the years but there are some very effective treatments you can get and also if if you if you're suffering hand pain your your keyboard should not be flat on the desk you can get a kind of wedge shaped think wedges <laughs> wedge shaped wedges to put your keyboard on now that will elevate it to about 45 degrees and that is much better for your hand position because your hands are not supposed to be flat and pointing straight ahead they're supposed to be elevated and pointing slightly at each other so you can get an ergonomic keyboard uh, and a keyboard wedge and that should really alleviate it and i have the wedge um it folds up so i can take it not a wedgie that's a different thing andrew so stop your giggling uh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Shames is young. <laughs> A wedgie does not help you uh, elevate your keyboard, as far as I know. I should try try it, though. But uh, I have one of these um, collapsible wedgies. <laughs> collapsible wedgies. That uh, you can take anywhere <laughs> you can take your wedge with you anywhere no you can this is a true thing Andrew be serious I'm trying to give out serious medical advice I'm, is, I'm is not that advisable,
0: though? serious I'm medical not advice to do with wedges I'm not sure you're kind, ruining, you're kind of
1: ruining it I'm trying to you know go serious uh, so they're my two pieces of advice I would say get a wedge and get a uh Ergonomic, ergonomic keyboard and also your eye line you have to be very careful with your eye line that it's straight ahead so if you're looking down at your screen or up at your screen that's really going to contribute to your neck pain so, maybe you could take I mean you really need to google it. I wouldn't trust me, and I certainly wouldn't trust Andrew or Seamus. so I, you need you need to go and look into it yourself, but that's that's what worked for me that's what I'm saying.
0: good. I would just add to that regular breaks don't don't sit still for yeah. three hours writing. have a regular break every forty five minutes even if you get up and just walk around for three minutes. have a regular yeah. break and 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 kind of a uh, uh, stretch off that'll also help refill your writing well um don't as, be coming in well.
1: here all hatful now at the end when you've been just like messing the whole. The whole the time and then come in at the end and say something really nice and sincere like that um,
0: i wonder it was it was sincere and probably more helpful than advice on wedges during <laughs> writing <laughs> that is true that is
1: true. I knew as soon as the wedge came out of my mouth that, that <laughs> <was at> <laughs> I said oh, I've opened the door now, I put a nice little wedge in that door, so yeah, I'll
0: oh, do. It's only taken us 50 minutes to go from the high art of Philip Pullman and story structure to cheap jokes about wedges. So that's...
1: Uh, Do you know, actually, do you know, and here's a question for both of you (laughs) on on. this subject. I was told this, uh, and I think, I'm sure I've told you, I was told this by a kid on a, I was doing a reading, I think it was in the States, and uh, I was talking, telling a story about how... uh, I had gotten one of the aforementioned wedgies uh, as a child in school. And he said, You know what's worse than a wedgie? And I said, No. And he said, An atomic wedgie. <laughs> now, do you know what an atomic wedgie is? Is well, it orange you, and it strawberry
0: is, flavor? Is it nice, <laughs> <it's> Lolly, <laughs> <it's> from the <laughs> it's
1: 1970s? It's nothing to do. It's, not- <laughs> it's an atomic
0: wedgie with a nice joke called stick.
1: Nice, nice callback.
0: Uh, no, there's no
1: stick involved. Uh, an atomic wedgie is when some really nasty person comes up behind a child. And he yanks the underpants band so high up that they can then hook it over their forehead. <laughs> that's
0: not true. No it one true survive that. No,
1: it's true. If you're like, if your underpants is old, it's lost its elasticity a bit. It's, it's and then the kid is walking around like this, you know. And when they take take the the thing off, he has Calvin Klein imprinted on his head backwards. I don't know, but that's an atomic wedgie, and apparently that is possible. Uh, photographs will be accepted at the at the at the Yeah,
0: if, if you have experience, if you readers have been traumatized and experienced an atomic wedgie, um then write in and um, send us ideally a picture of it. Ideally with an ice cream from the nineteen seventies, but we will accept pictures just of the atomic wedgie.
1: Yeah, no videos though, please. It's between We haven't got the
0: bandwidth for that. <laughs> no. So, uh, yeah,
1: let's, uh, uh I feel exhausted
0: now. I've got another question here now, but that, but you made me giggle so much. I feel exhausted now, but I will read you the second question, but you need to behave. Okay. This is from Shay from Brisbane. Um, and they say, how do you switch off? Uh, how do you stop writing from consuming every part of your life? I feel like the only, t- uh, I feel the only time I feel truly happy is when I write and that makes me feel guilty on top of it all. So how do you cuz we writers are always thinking we're always yeah. looking for ideas to nick, that's and we're it, always that's looking for ideas and so, and so. Yeah. Um, I'm not very good at, I'm not very good at turning off I am usually on alert no. cuz you you know you get emails from me or a text from me at odd times when I get when I get an idea I'll just text you or email you so uh yeah. you know how do you no, we're on?
1: not the best people to ask about this no. <laughs> we're not we're, we're mostly we're wired
0: like children 24 hours a day so we really we yeah. have no advice on this question at all do we we have no control i think we're
1: the only time we get to not write really i suppose or it's when we're doing something like this so and because this is a writing related activity i don't feel guilty about it you know so when no, i'm going no, on tour no. And I'm working or, and I'm meeting kids and uh, traveling that's kind of related to my writing so I don't feel bad but uh I, I do feel I mean I'm able to watch a bit of Netflix in the evenings that's okay but uh no I never really switch off I'm always looking for ideas and even when I'm looking at a program I'm, I'm analyzing how it's put together when I'm really reading a book I'm thinking how how great it is. And oh, I okay. wish I I've can... just
0: written down an idea for a book on my pad, A History of the World in 25 Wedges. I mean, I'm just, oh, I'm never on. I'm never yeah. on. Mm-hmm.
1: You're, you're on the wedge of glory. <laughs> the wedge of reason.
0: <laughs> well, on the, way, the wedge so, of yes, yeah, Sorry,
1: Shane, uh, in Brisbane, uh, we're, we do feel, I feel bad that I'm not writing. And I personally, I want to keep that going as long as I can. You know, I, I'm glad I still feel bad when I'm not working, and I'm glad I still get ideas. I'm,
0: gl- I'm glad you feel bad as well.
1: So I don't want—I don't want that to stop. It's like an actor who has who has whose nerves don't has doesn't have nerves anymore. It's not good for the performance. So I think for writers, it's good to have just that urge to just keep writing, keep getting better, uh, you know, and keep filling up those notebooks with ideas because. The way I think of it is, at some point, I'm going to run out of both ideas and energy.
0: That's so never going to happen. happen. That's not, You've been, you've been worrying about running out of ideas since you had since you had the the idea for Artemis, and that was like seventy five thousand books ago, and and 30, no, twenty-two million books sold ago. You're not going to run out of yeah. ideas.
1: Well, I, ho- I hope not. I mean, I think I have enough now to keep me going. Um, I, I've come, I've got an ideas folder, which is clever, very cleverly called ideas um and uh, where did you get the t- idea
0: for that because people like to well, know where I, writers I, I get the my, ideas the actual, for their ideas folder
1: but another one i have is is uh i have one called current and that's the one for you you know if i'm if i die you have to finish all those books so,
0: so is it um, is it a thick folder uh,
1: it's it's a bit mean because most of the money have like one and a half pages and then you have to do the other 70, 000 words. Mm, 000 So oh, no, there's okay. a couple of them are nearly finished <laughs> the, we'll no, do the transition ones. from the second first half to the second half where does that awkward pages in I'll the middle that up to you. yeah so um but no i shane i'm sorry not to be of any help to you there i mean i could say that all the old stuff go for a walk take a break have kids whatever um but uh really i don't want to stop writing i, I always want to be writing Kids are great and all, but you know they're growing up now, so they can fend for themselves. Sometimes I throw a few rashers out the door, and hopefully they get them. But mostly, I'm just I'm just writing, or else talking, yeah.
0: to Andrew. Do you think that helped? <laughs> I well, I think that I think that's encouragement. I think that's good advice to Samantha, and I think that's good advice to as well. So uh, that yeah. concludes it. And if you have questions, um, possibly more about writing and all about stories or about storytelling or about how books are put together or questions about publishing or the publishing industry um then we would be delighted if you would write in on the email to doublebookedpodcast at aol.com and yours will be featured in a future double booked so please yeah and any send questions, your questions about in.
1: wages will rise straight to the top of the pile. obviously that's the key word
0: yeah, the wedge the wedge address is double wedged podcast at AOL.com. So we'll say, I thought we'll you were gonna give
1: out my address there. <laughs> <laughs> Panicking. No, I thought that was your address. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think we held you know, I think we held on to our dignity that time, Andrew. I
0: think it's fine. Yeah, I know. I think that was good. Please join us for our December slash Christmas finale in episode six of Double Booked when we shall feature some pop-in special guests like Jenny Valentine and Jonathan Stroud and MJ Leonard, And we will have our own very special guest of PJ Lynch, Irish artist extraordinaire. PJ Lynch will be joining us. And all of that is going to be in a bumper December bundle next episode. Double Book was produced by Alan Colfer and Andrew Donkin and Seamus Redmond. Get well soon, Seamus. Sound editing by Seamus Redmond. Team music by Liam Bates, this has been a Silver Foxes production. No animals were harmed in the making of this podcast, or, as far as we know, are even aware of its existence.